Um, well, you know, I, I myself have been tied to a delivery table against my will and have been received obstetric care against my will. So pretty much anything I talk about, even though I'm a physician, I'm a midwife, you know, I'm a, all kinds of things, a mother, a grandmother, I speak from having been tied to a delivery table against my will and what that does, you know, and remember that I was somebody that never questioned my ability to give birth. I walked into this completely naive thinking that, you know, I was going to be in charge like my mama told me I was supposed to be and, you know, walked away from it going, okay, that's not going to happen again. And I'm going to make sure, you know, I can help other people um, understand what can happen when you don't when you give your authority away, even when you didn't know you were going to give it away, right? Like, that's the thing is we don't know yeah. we're going to do that. I'm Sarah Gustafson. I'm Bliss Young. I'm James Goodlatte, and this is the Holistic OBGYN Podcast. There are not that many midwives who are also doctors in the United States, but my guest today, Sarita Bennett, is one of those. She's a CPM DO. And she has served as the president of MANA. That's the um, Midwife Alliance of North America. <laughs> There's so many acronyms in, uh, in this episode. Um, she's affiliated with the North American Registry of Midwives. And she's done um, quite a bit of work in promoting out-of-hospital birth. Um, but she's also, in her years of practice, has also experienced quite a bit of tribulation. Um, people claiming that she's not been fair to midwives, that she has... Um, I don't know, given the impression that she thinks midwives are inferior, this and that, things get taken out of context, it gets, you know, fl it floods the internet headlines and all this stuff, and then we make snap judgments and determine that people are bad. But as an out-of-hospital birth worker, when you've gone to enough births, you also have um, some babies that die, you have some bad outcomes, you have some things that just sort of unforeseen challenges that happen in the hospital or out of the hospital. But in the out-of-hospital space, of course, we like to point fingers and blame um, as much as we do in the hospital. So Sarita's also been on that side of this, and we're going to get into all of that. Uh, Sarita actually, she and I were connected uh, most recently over Facebook because she was unhappy with something that had been said by one of my guests on a previous podcast episode. And I was like, listen, I get to choose my guests. I get to choose what we talk about. And sometimes, you know, people don't necessarily use all the right language because they're nervous about being on a podcast. And I said, would you like to be a guest? And she said, gladly. She wanted to talk and focus on the, the myth that obstetricians are, are the heroes here to save women from themselves and from the childbirth process. That is a deeply ingrained myth in our culture. And so we get into that. We also get into some of the politics and the ramifications for those of us who step into leadership roles and um, call spades spades. So. Um, Sarita gets her opportunity here to explain her side of the story. There's always three sides to the story. So you're going to love this interview. Um, we're, <laughs> we're taking an abrupt about face and getting right back into birth work, which of course is near and dear to me. And I think it's an important part of the culture of this podcast and my brand. While I'm recording this, I'm awaiting a two prior C-section home birth. 
um, whereby the client has a history of help in her first pregnancy, has had severe preeclampsia in her second pregnancy. Both of those resulted in C-section, and now she's pregnant again and wants to have a home birth. Of course, there's risks, there's benefits, those are there's alternatives. But sometimes electing a repeat um, C-section after you've had a couple is actually far more dangerous than meets the eye. Um, and if you're wondering about her clinical history, bear this in mind that there was there there are always so many facets of what can make a person sick in pregnancy. You're not a patient until you become sick, and when you become sick, the hospitals are there to help you. And HELP syndrome, which stands for um, hemolysis, low <laughs> elevated liver enzymes, and low platelets, is uh, not really on the spectrum of hypertensive disorders, but it's often associated with high blood pressure. In other words, you don't go from gestational hypertension to preeclampsia to severe preeclampsia to help. It doesn't always work like that. Um, although oftentimes you do see that sort of clinical progression, but HELP syndrome is a true emergency. And what doesn't meet the eye is that this particular person was under a tremendous amount of stress in her first, when she found out she was pregnant, her partner at the time, the father of the baby left her because she wouldn't get an abortion. And she ended up having a pregnancy alone and then ended up being coming a single, um, a, a single mom and was going through custody battles and all that other fun stuff. So that tremendous amount of stress should impress upon you the importance of us dialing in our physical, mental, emotional, and, and spiritual well-being. And sometimes it's just not possible. So barring that, and then considering she's done a great deal to take care of herself um, since then and since her second pregnancy, uh, I, I counseled her on everything. And she was like, let's do this. She understands that it's her decision. She's going to own the outcome of those decisions. And I'm going to do my very, very best to take care of her. So we've got that coming up. And I only say that story because uh, I can't impress upon you the importance of taking care of yourself in pregnancy. So if you enjoy the podcast, you know that we've got a couple brands that are aligned with me that are actually going to help you avoid those complications from the get-go. And when this couple came over to see me for the first time, I recommended that they do a couple things. I wanted to get her iron up. I wanted to get her red blood cells pumping out, cranking. I wanted to maintain adequate liver and kidney health. Um, just give her as much support as possible. And the first brand that I reached for when she was here at my home was a couple products from Bioptimizers. So Bioptimizers makes some of the cleanest supplements on the market. I know um, the owner personally. I know all of the owners of these companies personally. Otherwise, I wouldn't have them as podcast sponsors. I gave her some Masszymes. I gave her some HCL Breakthrough. And I gave her some of their Magnesium Breakthrough. Masszymes helps you digest and absorb your food, meaning you're going to get adequately nourished from all of that expensive, perhaps very, very whole, organic, regenerative food. If you're just throwing your money at that and then not absorbing it, obviously that's a problem. So Masszymes is a product that helps you digest and then absorb. Um, and also, you know, sort of indirectly providing some support to the lining of your intestines and the, micro, uh, the microbiome, which helps to maintain the integrity of your lining in order for you to absorb as much of that food that has now been um, digested a little bit more easily by Masszymes. And then I also gave her some HCL breakthrough, which starts the digestive process in the stomach. You know, iron is a really big topic, right? If you supplement with elemental iron, most of it's going to go out in your poop and may even make you constipated. The issue with low ferritin, right, which, which reflects an overall low storage of iron um, and, and, and anemia is that um, you may be eating enough iron, but if you're not breaking it down and, and absorbing it enough uh, adequately, let's say, or sufficiently, um, you're not going to get anywhere. 
supplementing with iron. So if you add HCL breakthrough and mastimes, this is my kind of two hit punch in order to make sure you're getting the most out of your food. And then also because she has a history of preeclampsia, I supplement with magnesium and magnesium breakthrough is the product that I gave her seven distinct types of magnesium to make sure that you're um, nourishing all of your tissues, which all require a slightly different um, uh, variety of magnesium. So all three of these products are available at a discount. Go to bioptimizers.com slash holistic OBGYN or use code BELOVED at checkout and you'll save yourself 10%. Another company that is very much in alignment with this whole lifestyle change thing is BirthFit. Um, there is very, very little bad things that anybody could say about BirthFit because what they're doing is they're they're filling this niche where women want to exercise in all three trimesters of their pregnancy and into the postpartum period, but no personal trainers out there. I don't care how experienced you are. If you haven't studied the physiology and anatomy and those changes that occur from the top of the spine all the way down to the pelvis throughout your, your pregnancy process, you're probably um, not ad adequately, let's say, educated or experienced to be counseling women who are being told in the medical system that it's unsafe, right? So they go to you and you're like, well, let's just take it easy. Well, not necessarily. If you have a birth fit coach in your corner, you're going to have all of the answers. You're going to be able to work out to your heart's content. And we know that exercise alone is independently associated with less pregnancy complications, shorter labors, uh, lesser chance of C-section, faster postpartum recovery. So go to, go to birthfit.com. You can find a birthfit professional there. If you want to take their postpartum um, basics course, you can use code BELOVED and save 20% on that. You can also use that code BELOVED to get one month free in the B community, which is a bunch of people like you built by women for women to get nervous system supported strength and um, strength and, uh, and conditioning advice, some lifestyle programming. They bring in great guests to speak in webinar format. You're going to love the B community. Why not enjoy it for a month? If you don't like it, no sweat, no big deal. At least you tried it out. There are a lot of things in your control, guys, and these are big discounts, big opportunities for you to take advantage of, uh, of really everything that BirthFit offers. Um, so let's just keep rolling with the lifestyle stuff. I mean, we've got so many great brands out there. My next company that is supporting the show is Organifi. Green juice in the morning for detoxification, get a little boost to your metabolism. Red juice in the afternoon, you're gonna get all the berries and beets and B vitamins that you could possibly need. Also some additional functional mushrooms to, to support you through the adaptogenic properties of a lot of these ingredients. And then, and that's gonna be like that natural energy boost in the afternoon. And then lastly, their gold latte, turmeric, lemon balm, some additional functional mushrooms, some adaptogenic um, ingredients in order to help you get the most restful sleep possible. This combination is what I do every single day. Green juice in the morning, red juice in the afternoon, gold latte at night, mixed with some whole fat, organic coconut milk. All of their products are USDA organic. They're all glyphosate free, dairy free, gluten free. They're all, um, uh, what was I going to say? Uh, uh, organic, glyphosate free, um, dairy free, gluten free. Well, I probably covered all the bases there. Basically, the cleanest ingredients on the planet. Um, they're all from whole food sources. You're going to get some very, very clean um, additional nutritional support for you, your baby, your partner. This is the, the way it goes. This combination on the website, which is belovedholistics.com, I'm sorry, organifi.com slash beloved, you'll find the sunrise to sunset kit. You'll get 30 servings of each of these and you'll get a fat 20% discount. And for a limited time, they're going to throw in 30 servings of their pure blend. Um, Organifi makes this great pure blend, which, help, which helps with mental clarity, focus, cognition. It's everything you need in the afternoon. I like to mix it with their red juice and some element and 
get this tart, delicious drink that has very low sugar. It's all the good stuff without any of the bad stuff. No fillers, nothing like that at Organifi. And I guess while we're on the topic, why don't we talk about We Natal? This is the new heavy hitter on the market, the prenatal vitamin market. I've got their whole welcome package here. They sent me this beautiful kit. They make his and her vitamins. They come in these little sleeves and they give you glass jars. So the glass jars, you refill each month with your subscription. Um, this limits the uh, all the packaging and stuff that people are constantly, I'm constantly throwing stuff away because people send me samples all the time and it's so much packaging. We Natal's got you. They're going to send you your starter kit, which gives you the glass jars. There's also a smaller travel size jar. Um, and you just fill it, fill it up with the, the uh, eco-friendly um, materials um, that are, well, you fill up with these pouches filled with the capsules, and those pouches are all um, made from recycled materials. They really, really care about the planet as much as the nutrition that you and your baby are receiving through the best prenatal on the, on the market. Um, if you go to their website, which is wenatal.com slash beloved, you're going to get a free bottle of their Omega DHA Plus. As you know, getting an adequate fish oil um, on top of all of the nutrients and all on top of all the supplements that we've already talked about from Organifi to buy, buy optimizers, you also need a, a really, really nice fish oil. And this is all your insurance policy on top of an already healthy lifestyle to the best of your time and your finances um, permission. So go to WeNatal, buy any prenatal product, you'll get a free bottle of their Mega DHA Plus. I love this company. Mark Hyman's behind this company. I am so thrilled to have found them. I'm glad they found me because I love having a quality prenatal to uh, recommend all of my clients. And this is the one, this is the prenatal du jour. They just keep getting better and better. Um, so go and check that out. Get your free bottle of fish oil from WeNatal. And then last but not least, we've got yet another way to support your health, your overall health. And that is through a product from the medicine, Immune Intel HCC. I've got a bottle of it right here. If you guys aren't watching, by the way, we're on YouTube. Just go to the Holistic OBGYN podcast on YouTube and you'll find us there. Subscribe, please. It's a really great way to know, for me to know that you're listening. So Immune Intel is a product made from the mycelia of shiitake mushrooms. It has been clinically demonstrated to increase immune surveillance by boosting NK cells, boosting T cells, boosting the connectivity between them. You're going to see a decreased systemic inflammatory response. And if you have persistent HPV, clinically demonstrated in vivo, meaning in people, to assist with the clearance of HPV and the integration of the message from the environment that is a virus. Mimi Lindquist, uh, the founder of this company, and I are also working on a course called Clear and Free, which will be your ultimate guide to, um, let's say, stabilizing and optimizing your immune health um, and clearing HPV. So while you're waiting for those repeat uh, PAPs, repeat HPV screens, maybe a painful biopsy, maybe a leap procedure, or a cold knife cone, or maybe, you know, sort of mitigating cancer risk altogether, cervical cancer risk, there's a there's plenty you can do. The follow-up for these visits when you get an abnormal screen is six to 12 months. Your doctor's probably not saying, hey, in addition to quitting smoking, why don't we actually boost your health through supplements like those provided by Bioptimizers, like those provided by um, Organifi, and even taking a healthy multivitamin, which for any woman or man, we Nandle's got you covered. The his and her package is perfect. You're doing all of that. And you can add another product that has actually been clinically demonstrated. It's not theoretical. It has been demonstrated. So I don't say proven because proof is a mathematical concept. But if you can do anything in your power to help avoid you know, whatever is going to come with that persistent pesky HPV infection, 
we've got you covered here. In the course, we're going to go over vaccines. We're going to go over Gardasil and all the controversy around Gardasil 9. That's the vaccine that has meant to, quote, prevent cervical cancer. It has not been demonstrated to do that. And it still contains all of the aluminum adjuvants that nobody wants in their body. Um, we're going to go deep into that course. So, so stay tuned for that. That's the next edition, um, the next chapter in the Born Free University empire that we're building, where you are going to be able to take full control of whatever's in your power um, in order to optimize your health, your vitality, your fertility, and your childbirth experience. So um, those sponsors make the keep the lights on here. Um, I'm trying to provide free public-facing education for everybody out there who's really, really interested in this stuff. And I know a lot of you are. Supporting the sponsors with your purchase really lets them know where your attention is. You can go anywhere. You can go find a different podcast. That's totally fine. But if there's some value here, trust me in these products. They are very much in alignment. I know all of the owners, myself. They are beautiful, wonderful people with so many great intentions and they want to do the best thing they can in order to, to uh, improve the health of the people here in my country and around the world. So support them. If you aren't looking to spend any money right now, as I mentioned, subscribe to our YouTube channel. And of course, you can um, leave a review. If you haven't left a five-star review, it really, really matters to the algorithm to get this conversation into as many ear holes as possible. And then lastly, share it on Instagram. Share it with your friends and family. If some of these conversations touch you, show us some love. Spread the word, baby. Let's do it. All right. Um, my guest today is Sarita Bennett. She is a CPM. She is a doctor of osteopathy. Um, a very, very rare gem is Sarita Bennett. Um, my name is Nathan Riley. I'm your host. You can find me at BelovedHolistics.com, BornFreeMethods at BornFreedMethod.com. And uh, I'm ready to rock and roll. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did with Dr. Sarita Bennett. Through my podcast which you're, you're, you're fortunate enough to be listening to right now, or maybe you're watching on YouTube, go find us at YouTube, Holistic OBGYN Podcast. You'll find us there easily. Whether you're listening or you're watching and you're a fan of this show, you see what I put out on Instagram, you come to my conferences, which are all around educating and trying to connect doctors and midwives and improving maternity care as a whole. I think there is one really sticky point for us in the United States, which is that when something bad happens in childbirth, that somebody had to be to blame, that the doctor didn't do the right thing, um, the midwife didn't do the right thing, the patient didn't do the right thing. There's this swirl of blame and shame that emerges. And while sometimes there are things that we could have done better in hindsight, playing you know Monday morning quarterback, as they say, oftentimes that kind of misses the big picture. So there is a very special guest I have here today who has lived through quite a number of tribulations. And um, her name is Dr. Sarita Bennett. And I say doctor because I mean it. She has gone through medical school, but that was not the traditional path. A lot of us go to college and then we take these courses and then we take a big test and we get accepted to med school. And then we go to med school for four years, maybe five or six, if you do a PhD program, and then you go to residency and then you go to fellowship, if you do that, and then you're practicing, you're in some hospital HMO or something. And that's that. Sarita, Sarita Bennett, my guest today, you took a very unorthodox path 
you started with midwifery and then you went into medical school, became an osteopathic physician. And now you find yourself decades later um, thinking on all of these lessons you've learned. And we're going to unpack some myths, I think, that have emerged in our, in our society, but also some of this horizontal violence that we see amongst people that may be well-intentioned, but perhaps are not really contributing to the resolution of some of these, these um, I don't know, horrific sort of circumstances we find ourselves here in North American maternity care. So Dr. Bennett, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Dr. Riley. Um, Nathan, I'm sure we're going to be first Nathan names is from fine. here on yeah. out. Yes, yeah. <laughs> Sarita is fine. <laughs> um, and um, yes, I'd like to talk today about a number of things that have happened to me throughout my life that really have given me a perspective that might be somewhat unorthodox, as you say. Um, you know, I grew up in a very uh, poor, rural, mountainous Appalachian culture of very self um, you know, dependent or independent people, and where home birth was not that far removed. My mother had given birth at home, and I was taught that that was, you know, childbirth was normal, and it was just something we did. Um, yeah. I never questioned my own ability, nor my ability to, you know, uh, nourish my children or raise them in a healthy way. So um, uh, I was always expected to be a lawyer, actually, as I went through high school and I first entered college and was very disillusioned with uh, higher education, uh, wound up being a college dropout, getting married, um, beginning to have children. And all of that led me into um, answering what might be considered a calling um, in that um, other people in the community, especially what I used to say were Mennonites and hippies who were beginning to have <laughs> home births back in the late, you know, in the 70s um, when I was having my first child. And over time, from my own experiences of childbirth and then beginning to teach about childbirth education and just winding up helping families that were planning to give birth at home, um, regardless of whether there was anybody there to help them, um, I began to really learn the language of the physiology of birth in what I call, you know, in the wild, um, in that we, people were in their own homes, they weren't interfered with by strangers, it was very much a relationship, uh, a relational, um, you know, service that we provided rather than transactional, and through those uh, about 15 years, um, during which time it was also, uh, you know, questionably legal um, and perhaps, according to attorneys, very illegal what I was doing. Um, you know, you learn a lot about yourself and about people and about birth. And interestingly, we had very few complications through those years um, <clears throat> and very few breastfeeding problems. I yeah. did get tired of being illegal, decided to go back to school after 20 years of being a dropout. And um, originally was planning to go into uh, nursing so that I could become a certified nurse midwife and very quickly realized that um, I was more cut out to become a physician and was supported by osteopathic physicians in my community. They'd always been my backup and you know my mentors. And um, the school was about an hour from where I lived. So with four, at the ripe old age of 38 with four children, ages four to 14, 
I entered the West Virginia School of Osteopathic Medicine um, and received a top quality education. And then later went to um, a community-based um, unopposed, in other words, we were the only residents, uh, residency in West Virginia where I had the really unique opportunity to work with old time family practice docs who had practiced medicine in the time when the art of making a differential diagnosis was, you know, was like what the art that you tried to um, attain. And I was yeah. taught that I should know the answer or at least have honed it to a couple of thoughts before I ordered the tests or before I ordered the imaging. So I had an amazing experience and education through those years. Yeah. So you emerged yeah. as a professional uh, a certified professional midwife, as well as an osteopathic physician, which in the United States, you know, there's still a little bit of stigma around DO versus MD, but the medical training of DOs is far superior in many ways to MDs. Surprise, everybody. It's another terrible business model <laughs> move by me where I'm like, I'm not that great. Go and see an osteopath, right? But yeah, certainly outside of North America, osteopathy has a very, very rich history. So you probably had one of the broadest educations of a birth worker uh, of anybody in, in North America, as far as I'm concerned. I, I would and, say it was, um, fairly, it was fairly unique. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's, I mean, it's a very unique path. So then you worked for years and then you found yourself, you know, in, on boards, you found yourself working for various four and three letter organizations. Um, people right. are going to, they're going to see your name and they're going to say, Sarita Bennett, don't I remember hearing that. And they're going to right. maybe reflect back on some weird controversies controversies that were emerging. And before I go on and have you clarify what, you know, there's always three sides to the story, right? Before we get right. your side of the story, this cancel culture thing where as soon as you hear something bad about somebody, now you don't trust anything they say. This is right. like a mind virus. And and I'm, right. I'm not immune to this either. Um, if somebody were to perhaps write an article that made you look not as great as you actually are with a beautiful, gushy headline that made you sound like a real shithead, it's going to be hard for people to shake that. So what we're going to try to do is we won't go too deep into this because I also want to get into some some storytelling around the, the sort of, um, quote, illusion of safety, you know, offered by the medical system and doctors. But Tell me what happened with MANA. You're the former president of MANA, which is the, uh, it, it, correct me if I'm wrong, Midwifery Alliance of North America. Um, Midwives Alliance, yes. Oh, Midwives America. Alliance. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about that. Let's talk a little bit about what you were, you know, what people claim happened and then really what actually ended up unfolding later. People never love to hear the resolution. They just want the like sure. guts and gore. Sure. So let's talk about sure. what happened in brief um, terms as we can. <laughs> Sure. I'll start with a quote from Mark Twain, who says it's easier to fool people than to convince them that they've been fooled. And that quote came to me very clearly through some of my um, years uh, on the MANA board. I will say that when I joined the MANA board, it was 2011. So I spent a decade on in that leadership role, first as secretary, then as vice president, and eventually as president. Um, I actually had not been uh, a, involved in MANA or even a member for you know, a number of years before that because I'd been too busy in my own life. And when I graduated, I did want to make correction. When I, when I graduated from DO school, I had not attained my CPM and did not. Oh. And when I joined the MANA board, I still was not a CPM. 
um, because there was really no benefit in attaining that credential as far as my professional uh, you know, licensing or uh, capability went. So um, when I was invited to join the MANA board um, was to fulfill the um, an unexpired term as secretary of someone who had stepped down and I did so. Um, and after being on the MANA board for a year or two, I decided I would go ahead and enter my um, paperwork for the experienced midwife pathway, which was about to be closed. I had started much of that paperwork long before I went to medical school and had put it aside and pulled it back out because I was now teaching midwifery students and on a midwifery board. And it made sense that, you know, I should have a midwifery credential. So, um, and since that pathway was about to close, you know, it made sense to go ahead and, and get that. Um, so through those years, uh, that decade on the MANA board, um, I was exposed to a number of different amazing people and uh, had amazing experiences and developed in my own leadership capabilities as well as my understanding of how nonprofit works. This wasn't my first time of being on a nonprofit board and it wasn't my first time of understanding you know, what can go wrong and how things can um, be used in ways when people don't understand the entire purpose of having a nonprofit to start with. So um, to just to get down to what finally happened, what people are going to remember is that in July of 2021, almost exactly two years ago, um, there was a petition that went out on social media uh, against me. And that petition included a clip from a meeting that I had attended. That meeting was a private meeting. I had no idea that it was going to be used. It was a business meeting that had nothing to do with MANA. And while I was not exactly eloquent in my words in that uh, clip, it was taken completely out of context to create an image of me saying that I could not support um, autonom autonomous midwives. And that petition um, resulted in me no longer having any due process or voice, and I was um, removed as president uh, from the MANA board. Um, and the experience you say? of that, I'm sorry. What did you say? say? What did you say? Let's just, for those who don't know, you, this is all public right. information, guys, but what, what sure. did you say that they thought was just so twisted and terrible? Right. Well, what I said was that I was no longer going to be able to support autonomous midwifery in Virginia. Okay. Oh, I got you. I so clearly said that. that. <laughs> it's actually yeah. that. But the context yeah. was that I was being put in a position by the state midwives that was not that I didn't want to speak for them. As a matter of fact, I had sent an email just a couple of months before that to their attorney who was part of this process of me being uh, removed, saying that I was ready to stand and speak for the Virginia midwives and their autonomy in any way I could. Um, anybody that knew me knew that I was supporting a number of different CPMs, not only in my own practice, but through con 
consultants like you do, people calling me about burrs, um, providing pharmaceuticals to people, their clients, so that they could be safe in their home environment, as well as providing being a collaborative physician for three certified nurse midwives to practice completely autonomously. So this, what I said that was taken out of context, even though I said it, was presented in a way that was completely in opposition to everything I had ever done or said, any of the work I had done with midwifery for the whole 40 years I'd been in, you know, women's healthcare. So it was very well done. The petition was very well done and it created a very clear image of me of being somebody that, you know, I, that I'm not. Um, I sent, uh, I made a public statement afterwards explaining what I meant and putting my words in context, um, not pointing any fingers at anybody, but explaining who I am. And I will say that in following the petition after I did that, many there were quite a few people that went back and asked for their names to be removed. Although once you're involved in something like that and your name's on a petition, it's something to think about, you may not be able to change that choice and and change your mind. Um, yeah. yeah. So that was basically are... what happened. You know, there, there are times when we say things that are truthful and if taken out of context, they can be twisted in all sorts of ways. Um, Correct. You know, most Correct. people think OBGYNs are bad, midwives are good. I've met a lot of really, really great OBGYNs. I've met a lot mm, of me really too. piss poor midwives. Mm, me if too. I were to say, uh, so if they were to, if somebody were to listen, hey guys, go ahead, take that snip. Mm -hmm. I've met a lot mm -hmm. of piss poor midwives. You could use that and, and run with it, whatever you, you know, whichever Completely. way you want, despite the fact that I've dedicated my entire post-conventional medical career to upholding midwifery and only going to births myself whenever they're like five time, you know, prior C-section and history of, of preeclampsia and help syndrome. Like I will right. encourage them, go get a midwife. We need to support midwifery. I'm not right. your guy. I need you to go right. to them. But regardless, if you, if, you know, you've invested, you invested so much of your time, so much of your otherwise time that could be spent making money and building an empire, you were doing the work through the nonprofit, you know, world to, to do your best. And, um, right. I, I like to always try to understand both sides of the story and then to let the third version emerge. Somebody was hurt. They had a really bad day and they just wanted to like unload on onto you and they had some reason some you know um whatever the word is uh sort of um agenda what's it called motive. when you have like a, an agenda or whatever yeah. yeah and so the power of of pr can really persuade people and i really encourage everybody to pause and reconsider before you start slandering and defaming and whatever and you know sarita maybe you are just like a heartless bitch like i don't know <laughs> But Could it doesn't be. seem like that to me. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I'm not going to say with 100% certainty that you're not. But we like from what I days. know, yeah, I wake up sometimes and I'm a total prick. So if, 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 if somebody were to get a videotape of that, of like a ring camera where I'm upset with my wife or my kids, like, and they were to say, look how awful he is. It's like, I had a moment, like, just right. let me like breathe for a second. Right. Right. Um, right. So anyways, uh, there's also been some other stuff that has unfolded. Do you want to talk a little bit about some of the other stuff that has happened thereafter with the Foundation of Advancement of Midwifery? 
Sure. So let me go back just a minute, because what people didn't understand about that petition as well is that up until the, that point, um, well, you know, like you say, anybody that's in leadership is a target and, you know, we all make mistakes. The board, the man aboard, the team I was working with up until that moment had told me repeatedly what a good job I was doing. And when I kept telling them, because I had said, I only will take this term for oh, this role for one term, I really did not want to be president. It's not a healthy place to be, um, as the history can show you. Um, and nobody was willing to step up and be ready to take over. And they just kept telling me they wanted me to keep going, especially with the work I was doing to help transition the MANA stats project. Um, so when we received a, a letter on a Friday in July demanding that I resign and that the board um, uh, give a response within 48 hours, our secretary, uh, because it was Friday and, you know, none of us want, worked on weekends if we could help it. We don't expect that. And we were going to be meeting all day on Monday. So our secretary wrote back and said, you know, we're meeting all day on Monday. We'll give you a response by the end of the day on Monday. But the petition hit social media on Sunday morning before I even had a chance to talk to my uh. board members about what had happened. So it was, or even, you know, be able to say what I was, what, you know, why I said what I said. So the whole thing happened in a way that it was clear to me that the people behind it were making sure that my voice wouldn't be heard. And think about the simple fact that the petition itself, because it was creating an image that didn't match anything else in my life, and because so many people that signed it had never been in the same room with me. They didn't know who I was. You know, they, even people who did know me didn't know what I'd been doing for the last 10 years or what had been happening within MANA. So the first thing I had to sort out was that this petition wasn't really about me. It was about an image that was created to make people think a certain right. thing about me. So then I had to go, well, why is that? And so then it, the next step was, well, it's to make sure that nobody hears my voice and nobody thinks about you know, what I'm about to say. And mm. what, what people needed to, what people didn't know was that from the time I took over as president, which had been about a year and a little more prior to the petition, that with the team that I was working with, and I thought had thought we were working quite well, we had managed to accomplish a number of tasks that up until that point were thought to be somewhat impossible. One of those was the transitioning of the MANA statistics project database, which um, has a whole history and I'll be glad to answer any questions about it. The bottom line was we had, I had sent out um, uh, proposals so that people, you know, uh, what are they called? A, um, to get proposals for someone to do the project and that had been answered by this amazing team that I'd never met before who were exactly what, what the division of research experts in the past have been looking for to be able to make the database more usable, um, both by being able to provide better products to contributors, but even more by being able to be user-friendly for researchers and expand the number of researchers that could access this amazing world-class database. 
um, we did that. We hired the people who were um, the developers in February, no, excuse me, in April. I sent out the request for uh, proposals in February and we hired them in April. And up until this point, from going through all of the minutes from MANA's Division of Research, it was thought that what these this team was able to accomplish was going to be impossible. Yet without cooperation within a, about a three to four month period, they were able to um, understand the old database, even without being given the passwords to it, um, transition the old data and create a new database that with some more um, work in phase three, would open up a whole new world of research to more researchers. And um, to some, you know, doing that work sounds like we were doing exactly what we were supposed to, yet I constantly got pushback from the previous volunteers who didn't seem to like that we were doing exactly what the Division of Research had said needed to be done. It was very mm. confusing. So what I came to through all of that is that in many ways MANA um, suffered from what has been termed founder syndrome where some of the people who were there at the beginning and have put a lot of hours into this nonprofit begin to feel some ownership in a way that doesn't allow progress and development of the assets or of the organization itself. So I, in that transitioning that project, which as far as I know has not been completed to allow that research access, um, uh, completing that project was huge. So um, yeah, so I think what I was saying is that um, I discovered that, you know, MANA suffered like a lot of nonprofits from founder syndrome, uh, which, results from a lot of people who put a lot of their heart and their time into it in especially in the early years as volunteers and sometimes their grasp can keep the organization and its projects from moving forward and developing in the way that it needs to grow yeah um yeah um, there were other areas in MANA that I saw that same founder syndrome, especially within representation at the in International Confederation of Midwives, triennials, um, doing that kind of work, um, and as well as, uh, you know, how money was um, was channeled through the, the charitable auxiliary, which is the foundation for the advancement of midwives. Gotcha. So hopefully people will go and just kind of read a little bit more about what's been going on with your story. Um, you've also had a couple, I want to get into this sort of myth of the, well, what I call the illusion of safety that's advertised, the sort of myth that we need the medical systems and doctors to save us from everything, uh, everything from childbirth to even our own death at end of life. Death is, is even seen as a failure of the medical sciences. But one thing I say all the time which is really challenging for people, is that there is no guarantee in childbirth. Even if you do all of the stuff to prevent all of these things, I've had some of the healthiest people in my life have tremendously challenging things happen. And I yes. have to just say, you know what? Sometimes the universe is working in very weird ways for you to be delivered a message, a sign, some meaning. Whether or not you find the meaning is not really relevant. There's something that happened to you 
And sometimes that's just a part of the way the universe works. And childbirth right. is no exception, certainly not at the end of life where we're like running away from uh, our own death at, at, at light speed in the opposite direction. But I want to kind of now get into why the illusion of safety is really not a relative moniker for the medical system that advertises that um, in childbirth specifically. But before that, I do want you to maybe reflect on some things that happened recently and relatively recently in your practice um, where you actually were were a, supporting a couple that had a bad outcome or a couple bad outcomes here and there. Can you just reflect on that a little bit? You don't have to go into into details, but I think people know, you know, bad things happen. We don't have to unpack what those bad things are, but we still have a family that has a resulting trauma from these terrible things happening. And instead of a fingers and blaming one another, sometimes it's helpful for us as a society to just accept that sometimes bad things happen. So let's, let's dive into that a little bit. Any reflections from these recent um, activities that you've been working through? Sure. One of my family practice mentors who I loved and had been a missionary for many, many years told me that when I went into practice, I didn't listen to his advice. And he told me that when I went into practice, especially if I opened a birth center, that I should hold a community meeting and I should just talk about the fact that sooner or later a baby would die and that there would be nothing anybody could do about it. And I think that his wisdom that I bypassed what really was addressing what you're talking about of bringing us back as humans to the reality that you know nature cares about the species but doesn't always care about the individual yeah. what i've learned from the stillbirths i've been involved with or from you know what has been termed bad outcomes and i think even to call it a bad outcome is somewhat of a misnomer, yeah. you know, unfortunately, totally right. <laughs> you know, totally what, right. whatever we want to call it, because our heart hurts so badly when it happens. Um, and, you know, it just makes you want to, you know, like, you know, hug your children. Um, the reality, the reality is, from what I've learned, is that birth physiology has been honed to a fine level of perfection as long as there are enough resources to support it and that healthy normal physiology doesn't kill healthy babies right mm. yet whenever even when there's a, a normal physiology birth especially if it's a breach in today's world there's gonna and there's anything at all even if it's proven that there's a genetic condition you know, a, somebody's going to get blamed for it because we live in a world of very, very dysfunctional culture where, um, and there's a lot of different terms I've used to describe that culture, where there's some need to always have someone to punish. Um, when we were talking about my petition, the petition against me before, what I understood then too was that a lot of people that didn't know me that jumped on it um, you know, we were coming out of years of political uncertainty, uh, the COVID pandemic. And I think as a yeah. culture, when we're feeling unsafe, we look for someone to punish. And, mm. you know, I was 
I, I caught the brunt of that. And I've also caught the brunt of that, um, you know, in, in the birth culture. One of the things too that happens that I find so unfortunate is that many times the relationship you've had with those clients, once they go into the medical system gets broken because within that medical system, within that institutionalized system, there is encouragement to blame anybody but the institution, you know, and, and I think that home birth or out of hospital providers often get blamed for things be, simply because they are providing care out of the hospital. I, I mean, I've basically been told by, you know, medical licensing authorities that to be a physician and to provide out of hospital maternity care is below the standard of care for physicians, period. Yeah. Doesn't matter whether there's a good outcome or a bad outcome. Mm. Yeah. 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 I, I also want to point out, and this is a, a study that came from Manistats, and I've certainly, it, it's not been published, but it was presented at ICM in 2017. Um, it, there was a, a fetal mortality review that really looked at the stories behind um, certain years of that database of that resulted in fetal deaths. And what what came from that, which is very much what I've also learned from years of doing peer review and case reviews, is that we really need to look at system breakdowns, right? Like we can say, you know, this person did this or the, this person did that. The real key is that the provider looked at the situation and was, you know, truthful about what choices have been made and why they were made. Um, the real issues, though, if we're going to fix these things, is to look at what the system breakdowns are. And the yeah. system breakdowns, and I've certainly run into all of them uh, and can understand them, um, that were identified and presented. One was a reluctance to transport from the home, which, you know, if you don't have a license, if you know there's going to be a punishment, if the family really doesn't want to go, there's a lot of reasons to explain that besides you know, we hate hospitals. You do want to make sure your clients are choosing home birth because they're supportive of home birth, not just because they're rejecting the hospital. That's really uh, uh -huh. trickiness, uh -huh. yeah. right? It's really tricky because then that hesitation yeah. to transport. Many, many midwives I've talked to through the years have said, I wanted to go, but she didn't want to, so I stayed a little longer. So that reluctance to transport can be for a lot of different reasons. Another one, and one of the reasons for that reluctance is hostility at the receiving institution. And, you know, a lot of us have run into that. And what that yeah. winds up doing is slowing down, you know, treatment and what needs to happen, especially if they're not willing to listen to the home birth provider. And the third one, which has to be addressed, has to be addressed, and I have run into it multiple times myself, is that EMS um, and even paramedics are not trained in neonatal resuscitation, which is completely different than resuscitation of anybody else that's already an air breather. And so yeah. I've experienced that and had to work to overcome that lack of education to, and I wasn't always successful to be able to keep EMS from harming the baby in transport. I'm going to, I'm going to be fishing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, these are all relevant factors that come up in any courtroom in which a midwife is is being scorned by the States, by a hospital administrator, an OBGYN or whatever. 
around the, you know, the, the one bad thing that happens versus the 99% of the times that those bad things don't happen. But when we have something bad happen, and again, to call it bad is really labeling it is actually not helpful. It, it's something right. that happened. If there's a, a doctor or a midwife who is truly negligent, I don't know many truly negligent healthcare professionals, but if you were truly negligent saying, I know how to do a C-section and then you do it and you don't know what you're doing, that's negligence. Right. Like that's, right. that's malpractice. Right. Um, so, so if, if we're going to uh, lean so heavily on this sort of negligence thing, um, we're, we're, we're really kind of doomed, right? So to call something mm -hmm. bad is not always mm -hmm. helpful. Um, I think right. we can say that that's a tremendously hard thing for the family to go through. I told you a oh, story about a indeed. recent um, patient who died of an amniotic fluid embolism at home. Like they were right. resuscitating, trying to get her to come back to life on the ambulance and she never came to because that's a catastrophic thing. The risk of that right. happening in North America is like one in 15, 20,000 of all right. births. In Europe, it's like one in 50,000. I mean, who could have possibly you know, expected that right. to happen. And then right. said, it. oh yeah, my crystal ball is telling me you're going to have an AFE. Like it just doesn't work like that. So the other thing is I want to throw this at you. If I walk into an, a labor and delivery suite in the hospital and I say, listen, I'm really, really concerned about your baby. I think your baby might not do so well if we keep going for a vaginal birth. I think we should have a C-section. And then they say, no, I don't think so. And I go back in a couple minutes later, I really am worried about your baby dying. I think we need to get you into the operating room. So I'm not even trying to paint the picture of coercive language. But if that person says, no, thank you, I would rather my baby die than you open my belly up. What say you about that? <laughs> you know, I had somebody say that to me one time. Um, and this was a woman that <clears throat> I had, um, she'd had a traumatic hospital birth. I had done counseling afterwards. Um, she'd had a very empowering home birth. She then had, um, you know, a, a pregnancy loss. And this was her fourth pregnancy. She was planning a, a home birth. She was really looking forward to it. And conditions developed towards the end that made us all agree that, um, that it would be unwise and that um, a, a C-section actually would be the safest course for this pregnancy. And she went through a lot because of her previous trauma. And that's really what I've seen affect women the most is when they've had traumatic births yeah. prior to that, um, be they C-sections or vaginal deliveries. And so this, you know, we went through a good bit of um, counseling and talk um, because, you know, basically what this woman was saying, which was heartbreaking, was if I give up my power will the children I already have still have the same mother that they have now? Will it destroy me as their mother? And is that worth this baby being born alive? And that's, you know, that's a tough question. And only she could answer that. Yeah. So, you know, all we could do would be to support her through it. What, long story short, what wound up happening is she did have a C-section and she was empowered by that C-section only because through our counseling, we very much encouraged her to understand that she could still be in charge, even though surgery was happening. And interestingly, when she then admitted, was admitted to the hospital, the surgeon, the OB that had been less than kind to her prenatally when she was doing her consult was who was on call. He walked in and she said, nope not you next and ah. 
And so the next person came on, they were able to establish a relationship. Um, she used a plan, which I've used with other cesarean moms, where they have some say over what anesthesia is given, whether or not there's narcotics or fentanyl in the epidural, for example. Um, some choose to just use uh, benzocaine uh, and not use fentanyl or morphine. Um, there's a really simple request a woman can make which is no talking in the OR except to the person on the table, you know, the mother, or as needed for the surgery. And that alone can change the entire atmosphere of the room. So I think when we start getting into this versus that, you know, C-section versus vagina, vaginal birth, hospital versus home, midwife versus doctor, we really do ourselves a, a disservice because we then rule out the possibility that there are ways to meet everybody's needs and still accomplish what needs to be accomplished. And she, her story was a great example of that. She came out of it going, you know, I am woman, hear me roar. And, yeah, um, that's interesting, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, the, the, if she decided to not have a, a surgery and her baby died, mm -hmm. um, I still honor that. Uh, that too. is something that we doctors have a really hard time with, though. And yes. so when we say, you know, our first thing was do no harm, like what you're saying is that if you're going to compel a person to have a surgery that they don't feel a hell yes coming you know, the answer coming from the inside of, of hell, yes, I want to do that. And they say no, but you're kind of coercing or compelling them to do that. You're actually going to do some harm on the mental, emotional, or even spiritual level. This is how birth trauma happens, Correct. is not Correct. being honored and acknowledged as a sovereign person who has autonomy over their, 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 their body parts. So, um, but I agree with you. I actually think that quite a number of these sticky situations arise um, because that person has really never been given any say in the decision-making process. And it's not a permission slip. Doctors can't say right. what you're, you are or not able to refuse. This is right. like the principles of bioethics we're talking here. But at the same time, how many people are making those decisions despite maybe wanting some support from, from hospital staff or midwives or whatever, but they're making these decisions because they're, they're getting a hell, a hell no because they're so averse based on some prior experience or how they were touched in the clinic room or the exam room or whatever else. I mean, there's, right. there's quite a bit more we can do all the way up until that point to build trust and to really see a person and understand their values before we start dictating what's going to happen to their body. Right. And I think, um, you know, part of what I wanted to talk about is a term I called the obstetric myth, just to get back to yeah, that. Yeah, let's get into that. Right. Yeah. Let's talk about that a little bit and what that means. And, you know, um, a myth really is a widely held but false belief to explain something usually religious, supernatural, something that's beyond explanation. And if anything's beyond explanation, birth is, right? You know, like anytime you watch, I have never walked away from a birth that I didn't go, that shouldn't happen. Like, that's amazing that that even happens. And so it was, it was easy for a myth to come along and get marketed to us. And you can mm. really see the results of it now. And you can, you know, the statistics are telling us it's a myth, even though right. no one's willing to admit that. So when you look at it, you know, birth is historically safe 
in a healthy mm. population. Um, you know, I can look at my own family history and my own culture and see that what really made the difference was whether or not families, women had access to um, the resources that it takes to be healthy, be it nutrition, um, shelter, um, you know, proper sanitation. And uh, as much as anything, what I see has made a huge difference has been the ability to space children and the ability to, you know, especially that allows postpartum recovery, right? So, yeah. and, you know, pe people who had a lot of babies knew that if a woman kept having baby after baby, one right on top of the other, it was going to wind up with not as good of an outcome as someone who could be taken care of and, and spaced out, you know, because birth ultimately works quite well. Mm. So birth was historically safe, even though we didn't always understand what made it safe, right? Like there's a lot of superstition around it. Put a knife under the bed to cut the pain. Don't put your hands above your head because you'll wrap the cord around the baby's neck when you're pregnant. There's lots and lots of superstition. And I come from a very superstitious Appalachian culture that around birth, right? So it was easy as the medical, um, industrial complex, I'll use that term, was being established. And as you referred to the MDDO, you know, um, lack of relationship, mm. it all happened about that same time. You know, if we want to get into the history, it was really a lot in the early 1900s. And it was very much by privileged people deciding how things were going to be from here on out. And that led to um, really a, a huge change in um, the culture, like in my state of West Virginia, in the 1920s, there were well over 600 midwives that registered whenever the laws changed and asked them to register. And they knew that wasn't all of them. Imagine 600 midwives in a state, um, which basically meant one in every community. So something had to be done to change that. And the, the story that came along that was sold to us was that birth was inherently dangerous. And, 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 you know, people did die, so it was easy to pick up on that one. Birth was inherently dangerous. Women were inherently weak, especially American women, and this is very well documented. And therefore, we needed, you know, a hero to come and rescue us from birth because, you know, it was going to be bad. And as things developed, we also needed somebody to rescue the baby from us, you know, because we were going to be too old or too young or have had too many babies or too fat or too skinny or, you know, too sweet or, you know, whatever <laughs> it is that we're going to be too much of to be able to do it ourselves. And it was for a number of different ways. It was easy to instill that myth, not only into yeah. American culture, but into medical education. And now into midwifery education in many ways that women need, you know, someone to rescue them from the process that is inherently theirs and inherently so well honed that the planet has plenty of people on it, even in very hostile environments. Right. So, you know, so if we want to, you know, like I keep saying, I grew up in Appalachia and I grew up with a dad that had lots and lots of good sayings. And he used to say, you know, figures never lie, but liars always figure. And that was something that, you know, impressed upon me to always kind of question, you know, how what really did make 
things safer because ultimately things got worse when medical people got involved, childbirth fever, all those kinds of things. So what actually made their interventions safer was the response to the problems they created, which was antibiotics, you know, better anesthesia, better surgery, blood transfusions, um, and things like that, but not actual obstetric protocols themselves. So when it really hit me that this was a myth, I was actually at a MANA conference and a researcher was talking about some statistics and I went and checked them today just to make sure I could quote them to you, you know, a little more correctly. And in the United States, it looks like obstetrics is very, very safe and very, very uh, successful. As a matter of fact, in the last 30 years, the intrapartum fetal mortality rate, which is are the babies that die during labor, has dropped from 5.3 per thousand to 0.3 per thousand. So it looks like in the past 30 years, we've made it a lot safer to get those babies out. What you have to look at along beside that though, is that our first day infant mortality rate. So those babies that looks like we get them cut out but while their hearts are still beating, we have the highest first day infant mortality rate of all of the you know, well-resourced countries. So just because we can get them out before they die yeah. doesn't mean we yeah. can keep them alive. And we haven't been able to do mm. much about that at all once we figured out how to save preterm babies. So the myth is that it's safe, but the babies die once they're no longer the OB's patient. Now they're the pediatrician's patient, right? And we know that the disparities in those um, outcomes for infant mortality is there, just like maternal mortality, I'll talk about that, in that it's, you know, the, the infant mortality for black babies is astronomically higher than that for white, Hispanic, or Asian Pacific Island babies. So it looks like we're saving them, we're not, and it's a large proportion are black children that are dying from this. Um, The other sacrifice we're making, of course, and I know you've had people on here talking about this, is then we're killing the mothers to be able to get that Mm. 0.3% intrapartum mortality rate. You know, look at what we're doing. Look at the mothers that are dying, um, especially black mothers and indigenous mothers, which is in my mind, Um, you know, the sacrifice that's being made to get that image of obstetrics looking safe, when in reality, none of the statistics support that that is true. What's up, guys? It's Nathan. Quick break from this amazing conversation. I wanted to tell you a little bit about the Born Free Method. We have been guiding, Sarah Rosser and I, one of the foreign midwives, we've been guiding 70 people now through the Born Free Method, which includes 12 months of weekly calls with me and Sarah. She and I have been overwhelmed um, with the abundance of clients that want us to work with them through pregnancy, from preconception all the way through childbirth into the postpartum period. 
And um, we decided to do this in a group coaching setting. So when you enroll with the Born Free Method, you're going to get 12 months of weekly calls with she and I. And we've already pre-recorded 100 plus lessons on everything from birth planning to care for the newborn, to intimacy, to sacred polarities, to every intervention under the sun, including stuff that other people don't want to touch, vitamin K, Rogam, GBS and antibiotics, history of prior C-section, um, breech birth, ultrasound, COVID, vaccines. We've covered everything under the sun. And you're going to be able to go into your birth, or if you're a birth worker, you're going to be able to counsel your clients better with all of the information. There's over 250 um, plus citations in this course. And you can go through as many times as you'd like. You get lifetime access and any updates come January 2024. We're going to have many, many more lessons that we add. You're going to get lifetime access to that. And as we get new information, we update the already pre-recorded lessons. So this is our magnum opus. And um, People are loving it. People are really, really digging it, whether you're a birth worker, experienced or otherwise, or this is your first pregnancy or 10th pregnancy, there is plenty here for you. We are going to be enrolling for one more month in 2023. Um, you can go to bornfreemethod.com and um, book an enrollment call. We'll get you enrolled right then and there. We won't be enrolling again until January of 2024. So go to bornfreemethod.com jump in. We want to have you in our community. It includes a private community of other like-minded people who have all of the right questions. Maybe you can share your insights. Maybe you'll learn something from the community as well. We'd love to have you. Go to bornfreemethod.com and enroll. Well, what about things that we can't measure? You know, I mean, we talk about C-section mortality or morbidity. People right. focus on blood loss, infection right. rates, uh, hospitalization after after how much opioids they're using, whatever. Uh, how many days did the baby spend in the NICU? What are the APGARs? What's the blood gases? They talk about all that. But what doesn't come into play are the immeasurable facets of actually what's important in life. You know, love. Um um, despair, sadness, joy, like these are not measurable things, but your experience in childbirth, I was always taught, doesn't matter. All that matters, all that's important to you, right, sweetie? Oh, all that we really want is a, is, a, is a happy baby and a happy mama after this, right? Well, what if by doing the C-section, yes, the baby is alive, but now mom is horrifically traumatized by being strapped down crucifixion style, has delayed, you know, um, bonding with their baby, has prolonged postpartum recovery. They end up in a downward spiral of anxiety, depression, everything else. The stats still look great. So just because you can measure it doesn't mean that's the only thing that's valuable to us in childbirth either. Correct. So I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not um, challenging you. I'm saying in addition right, right, to that, with right. the manipulation of stats, and, and we wipe our hands clean after the baby's out, we also right. have a lot of women who you know, are being traumatized even before the baby's out. Like, I'm gonna shove my hand inside of you and have your husband hold you down, have the nurse hold your other side down, and I'm gonna force my hand inside of you even though you're yelling no because I quote, need to check on the baby. These are right. deeply, deeply traumatizing things that we're doing, and it doesn't need to be like that, but it's all for the sake of making sure that that baby, that baby has a heartbeat after we're done. And that is just not good enough for me. It's not good enough for a lot of women. Right. I agree. Um, you know, I've 40 years of taking care of women. I've sat on a couch, listened to, you know, thousands of stories of trauma. 
And even the women who weren't held down, who came away from it saying, you know, I made that choice or, you know, it was a okay birth. Once you get into it, many times they've been uh, very traumatized by the experience, even though they didn't say anything, even though they didn't say no. Um, you know, there's um, there's an author whose name is Bethany Webster, who uh, talks a lot about what's called the mother wound. And the mother wound um, mm. really is the, if you want to think of it as the pain of being a second class citizen, of being marginalized. It's, it's not necessarily about your mother. It's more that, you know, we've been taught as females, especially that our voices don't count. Um, You know, when I entered medical school, the first thing I was told by my advisor was, oh, you're 38, you've got four kids, you'll never make it. You know, like all along the way as a female who has accomplished things, I've been told that I wouldn't be capable of that. And interestingly, along the way, as I have accomplished things, I've lost female friends Mm. because as Bethany explains in the mother wound, what happens is we develop these dysfunctional coping mechanisms to be able to survive it, to be able to normalize it and go on with our lives. And so Mm. when we become pregnant, which is a time when if we were supported in a healthy culture, we could lean into our bodies, we could lean into our pregnancies and into the, the, the development and growth that's possible during that time so that when we do give birth, we can fully claim our strength and our um, inner knowing as parents. You know, birth is about being a strong mother. Birth is about giving uh, your baby every opportunity to have future long-term health through the microbiome. It's not just a mechanical process to get a baby out of a, of a uterus. It's an delicate intertwined Mm. reproductive process that unfortunately and this is part of the obstetric myth obstetrics came along and divided it up into stages and sections and trimesters and gave us a language a scientific language to explain it that has worked to make us forget that when you touch it in one place like at your first prenatal if you say something like oh you might be too little that that's going to cause a ripple oh, that's yeah. going to come out yeah. you know, when she's in labor. Or if you say something that anywhere along the way that makes her doubt herself, you're going to see problems in labor. You're going to see problems with lactation. You're going to see people who have less of confidence in themselves to know that they can learn the language of their newborn and understand its needs without having to crowdsource yeah what do i do and one of the things that breaks my heart more than anything is seeing how many people how many new parents crowdsource for information that in another setting in another culture they would instinctively trust themselves to know yeah at what point i mean i birth it's about everything Oh, I was literally took the words out of my mouth. I mean, for me, what I tell people, I've got this program, the Born Free Method. And like, they're like, it's a childbirth class. You're going to cover this topic this time. I'm like, yeah, we're going to cover all the topics. But the point is, is this is a 12 month coaching program whereby I am deconditioning you from not only the outsourcing of your power and, and with my colleague, Sarah Rosser, who's one of the, the farm midwives, um, we're, we're, we're going to be deconditioning you 
from this outsourcing of power that you were sort of vested with this, like, just give away your power, just ask permission to be a good girl, be a good boy, whatever, from the from a very early age. And if you're a woman of color, that like the systematic and systemic violence and 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 um, and the provocation of your beingness over probably your entire life is something that can't be confronted the moment you're rolling into the hospital in order to now exercise your sovereignty. Like these are deeply, deeply, deeply conditioned values and belief systems that you're not good enough, that you're broken, that you're not able to do this, that this is a medical pathology being pregnant. And so, you know, I'm, I'm glossing over this, but this is a very, very deeply important topic. And the myth of obstetrics perpetuates this sort of conditioning. Um, so Correct. carry on. I, I, you say whatever you wish. This is, uh, <laughs> exactly what I think people need to hear. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. Um, well, you know, I, I myself have been tied to a delivery table against my will and have been received obstetric care against my will. So pretty much anything I talk about, even though I'm a physician, I'm a midwife, you know, I'm a, all kinds of things, a mother, a grandmother, I speak from having been tied to a delivery table against my will and what that does, you know, and remember that I was somebody that never questioned my ability to give birth. I walked into this completely naive thinking that, you know, I was going to be in charge like my mama told me I was supposed to be and, you know, walked away from it going, okay, that's not going to happen again. And I'm going to make sure, you know, I can help other people um, understand what can happen when you don't, when you give your authority away, even when you didn't know you were going to give it away, right? Like, that's the thing is we don't know we're going to do that. Yeah. Um, we are groomed to do it. And, you know, as a female, we're told, and you made mention to, you know, I've, I've more than once been um, in a position as a truth teller or as a uh, someone, uh, another title I've been given as a critical lover of the process. You know, I like to mm. point out where we can make things uh, better, not because I'm blaming anybody for what's wrong, but because I, I think it's always worth looking at what we can make better. And so, you know, throughout my entire career of everything, a lot of it has been aimed at looking at what are the conditions that really could be addressed that, um, you know, could change the outcome exponentially it's the old chaos theory you know look at the uh, initial condition and you change the outcome exponentially and yeah. so that's why i've come back over and over to the first thing which is that females are groomed to stay small to not rock the boat to um yeah. you know do what they're told to get in line and then we have an entire women's health um, healthcare system based on their compliance to do exactly that um you know i've had uh clients who i had to honor their choice because i believe in full informed consent i'm somebody who i'm sovereign I'm going to make my own choices and I'm going to stand by the consequences of those choices. And I'm going to offer that environment and that to anybody that I've provided any kind of service to, you know, it's like you're sovereign, especially in your own home. Um, yeah. I can give you advice. Yeah. I can bring in my experience, but they know their body and they know themselves better than anybody else. Um, yeah. And if they make a decision that isn't what I recommend, then it's up to me to decide, you know, whether uh, you're willing to where, where I want to be. Right. Yeah. 
yeah, where right. I want to be. Right. And I have made that decision that I didn't. And, you know, they made a decision differently than what I recommended. And the system will still blame me for that, even though mm. ACOG, everybody's clear that we're, we all have the rights to make our choices. So I've been told by medical authorities that it is actually a physician's standard to sweetly coerce people into doing what you know that's what they've told you that that's actually what you've landed on oh my god yeah yeah yeah. i had somebody from the board of medicine tell me um citizens are not capable of making their own decisions and that was my job to make sure they did what they were supposed to do yeah i've been told some really interesting things by um, medical authorities through the years And, and at the same time we are giving little kids permission to go get and go get an mrna poorly tested who right. knows how efficacious vaccine without their parents consent but right. but women can't consent in childbirth like they are not functioning adults their kids clearly have capacity for decision making capacity cool. for decision making for those listening is a very very clearly described sort of bioethical unpacking you can do where you have to yes. be able to understand relate it back you have to be able to bring in your values and your preferences into the conversation and then you have to actually express verbally in some way what your decision is. Like capacity for decision making sounds complicated, but most people you meet in everyday life, especially young, healthy people having babies, have full capacity for decision making. It's our job. It's incumbent on the system to provide you with the information in layman terms, in third grade reading level, whatever it is that's required for you to exercise autonomy. Otherwise, you need a guardian of the, you need to be a guardian, uh, a, a ward of the state for somebody else to make decisions for you. It is not our Correct. job to coerce anybody. That is Correct. so disgusting. I had n- I've never heard that. What oh, you just I've said. been told. Oh, yeah, I've been told many things um, by medical authorities, which you know makes me really look at. And I think you and I probably have some similar attitudes. That when we look at um, licensing authorities, hospital authorities, uh, insurance authorities, that really they're the people that keep the system in place and are not very quick to change any of the underlying conditions that keep that system in place. Oh yeah. Um, what, what you probably also know, you know, I've taught on, uh, I've taught medical students and so I'm, I'm aware of, it's been a bit, but I'm aware of how, how long it takes for medical curriculum to change, to reflect new science or changing standards of care. So to bring in, information like breach without borders is doing where we can change a standard of care around how birth is performed even in institutions can take decades before it actually gets established as standard of care in the meantime people are dying like mothers and babies are dying ultimately if that weren't true i would never have said another word and like you say you know we have epidemics of postpartum depression we have epidemics of traumatized women through their birthing experiences when what what could have happened is right. a, a family that came through intact and empowered regardless of you know the circumstances of the birth itself so it's more than just we need to lower the c-section rate we need to put the power back where it belongs the power belongs in the family and in the hands of the people who are reproducing. Until we do that, I'm not sure we're really going to change anything. Mm. 
Sarita, I think we're, we're going to have to stay in touch and continue working on this problem together because in an hour, I don't think we've solved the world's problems, but I do think that you're on the right path and I hope that you continue to work and continue to invest yourself despite the naysayers. And oh, yes. um, uh, I think your voice is very, very critical in this conversation. I, um, oh, I feel very honored so and privileged that you spent some time with me. I do want to um, refer people back to the Foundation for the Advancement of Midwifery Facebook page so that they can see some of the conflict that's going on, which is really around privilege in the midwifery profession and um, make some changes in the midwifery representation in our country. The other thing, and thank you for um, encouraging me to continue. I have developed uh, some really good friends. We're working on a lot of storytelling skills and storytelling workshops, especially to help people tell their stories in a way that can have impact and um, help us move through our trauma rather than just um, staying in it. And then my long-term plan, um, I'm working with a partner who um, uh, we are creating a course called Foundational Concepts for Midwives. Um, even though it's labeled for midwives, it's really for anybody, um, beginner or experienced, who wants to take another look at the science and at um, all of these issues we're talking about, but standing from the perspective of no longer believing the obstetric myth and instead standing firmly on an understanding of the language of physiology so that we can begin to hear what people are saying and make the changes that we need to make. If anybody, one final thing I want to give you the opportunity to speak to is, you know, I imagine um, using the word virus is so loaded right now, but let's just say a virus, you know, came upon us and our neighbors and friends and family, so many people, 50% of the population turned into like face eating zombies. <laughs> and they're running around the streets and they're just eating people's faces and they're just like, oh, grandma's ripping her, you know, ripping grandma's throat out and all this. And they then something happens where like the Wizard of Oz or something snaps his fingers and suddenly these people come out of a spell. Mm -hmm. And then we're looking at like our mom who's got like, you know, some entrails in her hands, like sausage <laughs> length. And, she, and she's like, what happened? What, what did I do? And we're like, oh, my God, mom, you just like ripped apart a whole bunch of people like it was that was terrible obviously we're going to try to like rehab them into reintegrating and trying to make sense of what that nightmare was when we saw everybody's entrails all over right. the place right i know this sounds like a weird story but, but bear with me so <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm there <laughs> if that were to happen right we wouldn't we would we would say listen that was some tremendously hard stuff to watch. Um, uh, what, what a what a what a nightmare of a thing to happen. But let's try to build our communities back. Let's try to let's try to grow past this together. Yes. When people hear these conversations, a lot of people get this reflexive: I'm in or I'm out, and they want to go and leave mm -hmm. a bad podcast review, or they want to go and like you know, and another thing about Sarita Bennett, <laughs> you know, like they want to do that type of stuff. If we sure. can hold space for them to come back in. What do you have to say to the people that had so much nasty stuff and not now maybe want to rescind and backpedal and maybe rebuild some bridges with you? What do you want to say on your billboard? On my billboard? You know, it's funny yeah. that you use that description 
of the zombies, um, simply because as a family practice doctor, because, you know, I've done a lot more than just births, and I've taken care of people from, you know, as they say, womb to tomb, nursing homes, all that kind of thing. Yeah. And one of the experiences I've had that I've lived through is being a physician in Appalachia in the years of the opioid epidemic, right? So I did watch not exactly flesh, you know, face eating monsters, but I did watch, um, you know, communities turn into be decimated by, you know, a bit of a horror and people come out of their addictions and wake up and say, you know, what did I just do? So, you know, what, what you described is not all that far from reality in, um, you know, oh, I know. communities <laughs> and towns. And, you know, I, I moved away from here after being a family practice doc here for, um, well, it was about 12, 13 years. I ran my own clinic, moved away and then have recently retired and come back. Um, and I've been living back in my hometown for about a year and a half. And some events, um, you know, really kind of made me realize that while I've been gone, not the, the opioid epidemics and all of the things that go with it has really impacted, has grown and, and impacted everybody. You know, like it's hard to see the forest for the trees. And so I'm going to tell you about this topic, the same thing that I feel about in my home community. Until we all admit that we all created this together, it's not any one person's fault. It's not any one group's fault. Everything we're living right now is a result of the choices each and every one of us made, regardless of the intention behind those choices. And we're going to have to admit it, right? Like everybody's going to have to say, I was part of the problem by and figure out how we were complicit with that obstetric myth, how we were complicit with, um, you know, like this, I, I use the term spiritual murder that can go with online petitions, mm. how we were complicit with allowing the privilege to grow within the midwifery community while we turned our heads because we're busy with our own lives. And, you know, and we're busy with our own lives. There's, there's no sin in that. The, the real mm. answer now, though, is that it's gonna take collaboration. And collaboration is defined by me, you know, my favorite definition is, collaboration is the idea that didn't exist until everyone entered the room. And so what I am beginning to understand is that while we can sit and philosophize and, you know, fix all the problems of the world, ultimately it's gonna take every one of us in our own little unit, our own little world, doing not what's best for me as the individual, but what's best for our community and our world collectively. And when we right. all are able to do that, that meets the definition of the swarm theory. I love theories. And the swarm theory really is that a swarm or a murmuration moves together because each individual in its own unit is putting the 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 well-being of the whole as the top priority yeah. so anybody you know i i i'm a talker and i don't hold grudges there are i'm very cautious and i have good friends and i you know will always be a truth teller and i will always even when it hurts yeah. So, you know, anybody that wants to um, hang out with me, um, they're going to have to be a truth teller, too. And they're going to have to be willing to admit that 
we're all in it together and you know we all made mistakes we all created this mess and it's going to take everybody to get us out of it i'm with you i love that attitude and i think that was a great question i could see jeff the uh my friend here who helps produce the show, I could hear him cracking up on the other end. I couldn't hear him, but I could, I could see it. And, uh, but the zombie thing is actually really like, let's make it super extreme because we have a hard time even just saying sorry or asking for forgiveness or, or saying, Hey, I was wrong. Like we're never really incentivized in our society for doing that. So if we use that extreme example, would you do it then? Would you do it then? And if so, then why can't you do it now? Why can't we just say, you know what, Sarita, I was wrong. Um, I'll make this up to you. I, I want to spend some time with you. I, let me know how I can support you. I mean, whatever. Like, there are ways for us to get through this, but we're not even practicing these easy things with our children and our partners, let alone with a zombie apocalypse. So, um, thank you for for playing ball with me there. Um, thank you, Sarita. We're out of time. Yeah. yeah. Any final remarks? Because we're going to close it up here. I really appreciate your time. No, I, I just want to thank you for asking me the, the tough questions. I'm always up for that. And, you know, I um, would look forward to any future conversations as we figure out how to fix it. Amazing. Yeah. We'll stay in touch. Um, we will, we'll, we'll definitely be posting any links you have. We'll post those in the show notes. Guys, you can go to belovedholistics.com slash podcast. You can get all the show the details, the nuts and bolts of what um, Dr. Sarita Bennett, midwife Serena Brett and Bennett has been working on. So Sarita, thank you. And um, I'm sure we'll be chatting more soon. Okay. Thank you so much. so much for tuning in another amazing episode of the holistic of podcast under wraps if you want to find me nathan riley i'm the host i am an md i'm a fellow of acog meaning i'm a board certified ob i'm also a board certified hospice and palliative care physician you can find all of my services and products at belovedholistics.com including an online shop with discount codes for all of the brands that are at the top of their category from water and hydration to supplements to um, courses. I mean, there's so much there. So go check that out. I also offer private consultation. You can buy packages. I'm also, um, of course, the PRP fertility program is open to all comers. You can find all of that at belovedholistics.com. If you're a midwife and you need collaboration from a physician, I got you. Go to Beloved Holistics. You'll find everything there. If you guys are enjoying the podcast, please support the sponsors. If you haven't left a five-star review, please go do that. It really, really means a lot. And lastly, if something in this episode touched you, share it with somebody that you love. I'm sure that they're going to love it too. We'll see you next week right back here on the Holistic OBGYN podcast. Take care and do no harm. Take no shit. Bye-bye, everybody.